this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanandan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. We're thrilled to be Zooming via Moon Palace Books tonight and to be in conversation with Charles Baxter about his 17th book, the novel The Sun Collective, and with Mike Alberti about his debut, the short story collection Some People Let You Down. In addition to The Sun Collective, Charles Baxter is also the author of the novels The Feast of Love, nominated for the National Book Award, First Light, which is a book that I used a lot when I was writing my last book, uh, Saul and Patsy, Shadow Play, The Soul, Soul Thief, and the story collections Believers, Griffin, Harmony of the World, A Relative Stranger, There's Something I Want to Do, and Through the Safety Net. His stories have been included in Best American Short Stories eight times. Baxter lives in Minneapolis and teaches in the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College. Um, he, in the spring, he retired after 18 years of teaching in the MFA program at the University of Minnesota. Where, lucky me, for the last five years of that time, Charlie was my senior colleague. Uh, he also taught our other guest, my friend Mike Alberti, who graduated from that program in 2016. Mike Alberti's short fiction has appeared in Colorado Review, Crazy Horse, Gulf Coast, Indiana Review, One Story, and elsewhere. His work has been supported by fellowships and residencies, including the Camargo Foundation, the James Merrill House, the Ucross Foundation, and the McDowell Colony. Some People Let You Down is the 2020 winner of the Catherine Ann Porter Prize in short fiction. Mike lives in Minneapolis, serves as the managing director for Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop, and teaches in prisons across the state. Mike and Charlie, congratulations on the publication of your books, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Sergey. Thank you for having. It's such an honor to to be here with all of you, and and especially an honor to launch my book alongside yours, Charlie. Sugi, who do you think wins the author backdrop between uh, Mike and Charles? <laughs> Charlie's got to win because it's books, right? I don't know. I kind of like the wood paneling on that window. It's nice. There's some, you know, there's some touches there that it's funky wallpaper. <laughs> Anyway, it's a treat to have both of you with us and, in Charlie's case, back with us because he came and discussed Russian literature with us back in the first season of this podcast. And I think this is the first time we've interviewed a student-teacher pair um, because both of you have taught in the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. We're going to incorporate some questions from students from there into our conversation before turning to the general audience Q&A at the end of, the, of this discussion. But, Mike, I wonder if we can begin by talking about your collection your stories touch on people and places that find themselves at moments of change, both despair and renewal, particularly in small towns. Some of them nearby here. Uh, I'm in Kansas City, by the way. Uh, the descriptions of places are beautiful. They cover a huge span of time, and they're also carefully, subtly linked. I was reminded of the connections in, Char in Charlie Baxter's work, particularly. There's something I want, I want you to do. How did you think about connecting your stories, and what sorts of conversations did you, the two of you have about that when you were building this collection? Mm, uh, that's such a good, um, such a good question, and I'm so happy that those subtle linkages between the stories came through. Um, I, I never really set out to write a, a linked collection. Um, for the most part, the book kind of grew organically out of my particular interests and preoccupations, um, especially as you mentioned with with place and with the natural world. So there was kind of a thematic linkage, but um, in the early stages, but not much more than that. Um, and then in, in what I think was my first class with you, Charlie, uh, you introduced us to a concept called the Novita, which um, I believe you invented. Uh, <laughs> one of the, one of the great pleasures of being Charlie's student is that you, you get to learn this incredibly um, rich and useful vocabulary that that Charlie has created for for thinking about what fiction is and how it works. Um, so, Charlie, you can correct me if I describe this incorrectly, but um, the Novita is a, is a kind of a form of fiction that's somewhere between a novel and a collection of short stories. Um, in which the different parts are, are linked together, but also build to a to a cohesive conclusion. Um, and and the book that you you mentioned, Whitney, there's something I want you to do. Charlie's book is um, is a great example of that. Um, and so in that class and uh, in future classes with Charlie, I became interested in um, 
especially uh, the use of images that, that are repeated in a story. Um, it's something Charlie calls echoing imagery. Um, and eventually that actually became the method I found for kind of tying my own book together. So although there aren't really recurring characters um, and the stories take place in different settings and, and different times, there are certain images that repeat themselves um, throughout, and especially the image of, of an abandoned town in, in Western Kansas, which uh, comes to exert a kind of gravity over the book. You can return to that over and over again in, in the different stories. Um, and so my hope is that this kind of repetition would give readers a sense of both um, circularity and also forward movement as though the, the stories are, are kind of demanding to be retold again and again in, in different versions. Yeah, um, in, in that class when we were talking about the Novita, I think one of the points that I hoped to make to the, to the class was that linked stories are, are particularly good uh, at depicting communities. Uh, and I can't remember whether we read James Joyce's Dubliners uh, and Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio. Winesburg, yes, definitely. And Edward P. Jones's uh, Lost in the City, which is about the African-American community in Washington, D.C. Uh, but I... Um, I, I do remember trying to convey to everybody that these sorts of stories um, kind of oscillate between stories of development, uh, and, and they do tend to focus on, on young people, adolescents, young adults, as many of your stories do, Mike. Uh, and, and the way that communities can form and, and display Verse. Uh, so, you know, when when I began to read your stories, particularly in the second year uh, that you were at Minnesota, I noticed that there was a kind of community growing in the stories that you were writing. And that's when uh, I thought they really began to show a direction. So, Charlie, place figures heavily in your work, too. And as with some of your previous work, Minnesotan readers will recognize familiar spots. That was one of the pleasures of reading for me. Uh, there's the Utopia Mall, which is really the Mall of America, the light rail, um, where the, the book begins, and Minnehaha Falls, uh, many other places. And in your book, an older couple, Harry and Alma Bredigan, search for their uh, misplaced son, I should say, an actor who has drifted into involvement with the group of the book's name, which is a sort of, um, as Harry, Harry Bredigan calls it, an earth improvement project, which I really liked. And, and they meet some Sun Collective members. Uh, and so Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop student Will sent in two questions that I'm going to combine here. Can you talk a little bit about coming to the point where you invent this political entity, the Sun Collective? Uh, they're very funny. And why this is an activist group that starts here in Minneapolis? Uh, it's it's a great question, and I hope to do justice to it. I think there are really two, possibly three, relatively quick answers to it. Um, when you're working on a book, you, you you sort of have to find a way of giving your imagination a home. And I think uh, some writers go back to the scenes of their childhood and their adolescence but I tend to write about the places where I'm, I'm living. Uh, they, all of that just begins to seep in on you. And because I was walking around the city and because I was thinking about Minneapolis and actually thinking about some of the um, radical movements that were located here, particularly in the 1930s, there was a, a, a very strong movement of communists, particularly uh, followers of Trotsky in, in, the, in the 1930s, mostly in the truckers union. 
and around the same time uh, a fairly sizable fascist group called the silver shirts who were standing in opposition to immigration and to unionization but the city has a very active political past and a lot of political figures have come from here in including hubert humphrey eugene mccarthy and many others and so i thought it was natural in some ways for me to um locate uh, uh, um, a, a group like the sun collective uh in northeast minneapolis and to have them, in some sense, recapitulating some of the political history of, of the city. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the question could be, like, what political activist movements don't start in Minneapolis <laughs> or Minnesota in some ways? Yeah, yeah, well, well, exactly. Um, but, I mean, added to that, the, the scenes, several of the scenes in the book, uh, particularly one where Harry Bredigan is talking to a homeless guy on the light rail stop at Fifth and Hennepin. It was a conversation that I had with a homeless guy uh, at the light rail stop in Fifth and Hennepin. Well, does that mean that you're in the thundering herd as well? I, I, I know you grew up in Minneapolis. I mean, you're, are those your, are those your homeboys that you're walking around the mall with, or did you make that up? You know, I'm not crazy about the Mall of America. <laughs> However... I was out there early one morning in the winter and I saw several groups of senior citizens uh, doing their power walking uh, around the mall. And I thought it was kind of great and hilarious. And so in it went. So Mike, how about you and your day job? You, you do social justice work. How do political crises or social injustices find their way in your writing? But I guess I could also say, how do they not find their way? Yeah, that's, that's another good question. Um, well, I think Charlie's book really touches on, on, this, on this as well. Um, I think there are a lot of people in this country right now, um, especially right now, who feel a, a kind of pervasive despair, um, you know, a, a sense that any bright future that they imagined for for themselves or, or for their kids is is sort of being foreclosed on, um, and I think I would call that a political crisis. Um, so, in in my work uh, in in this book, I'm I'm writing about people in in these dying towns, you know, where maybe they've seen the local factory jobs disappear, but. I sense another another version of that feeling among people I know, friends here in Minneapolis. You know, people thinking about climate change, um, for example, and um, you know what that means for our collective futures and and how we think about them. And and I, I'm drawn to to trying to represent that feeling, that despair, which Charlie, you do so well in you know among the young people in your book as well, and and not just this despair, but the anger that, that arises out of that. Um, when you, you mentioned my, my day job as uh, managing director of Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop, which is an incredible organization that teaches creative writing classes in Minnesota State Prison, and we try to support incarcerated writers in, in a lot of other ways. Sugi, also very involved in our work as a mentor and a board member, and and Charlie has been kind enough to to visit our classroom several times, um, and it it might surprise people to um, to hear that the people who have inspired me to be more hopeful, uh, less despairing about the future, you both in my life and 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 my writing are are the incarcerated writers that I work with um, through MPWW. These are are men and women in the most isolated, dehumanizing conditions, uh, you know, more so now than than ever. And still, they manage to make beautiful art and build community and organize together to make their lives better. Um, 
Charlie, I don't know if you remember this. In in one of our, in I think it was probably your last visit uh, with me to to class um, in one of the in one of the prisons. Um, you talked about how every every short story or every work of fiction is is a kind of hypothetical world. Um, and that was something that we all we all really latched onto. I mean, for the men in that class who don't have a lot of power to change their immediate material circumstances, imagining a different world um, can be a really revolutionary act, and and that's a standard that I've I've tried to live up to in my own work since then. Not just trying to realistically and accurately portray, represent the world as it is in, in, in all of its grimness, but also to take another step and um, think about how fiction can, can imagine other worlds, other ways that we might live together. One of the things I really appreciated about both of your books is the way that um, kind of suggestions of hope or renewal come into it, um, which leads me to ask Mike if you would read a little bit for us. Yes, it would be my pleasure. Um, I'm going to read from a story called Prairie Fire 1899. The story is set in a, in a coal mining town in North Dakota in 1899. Um, and I'm actually going to read the ending of the story. Uh, and what's happened up to this point is that a prairie fire has been started by a stray piece of coal um, that's kind of come off of a, a passing train. And as the fire has approached the town, the residents have have been working together to try to to try to stop it, to to dig a trench around the town so that the fire can't reach the town and and burn it down. Um, and it seems for a moment like it might work, but then um, it it doesn't. Uh, and I'll spare you the. It's a little bit gruesome the reason why, but it has to do with these rabbits that are on fire and and uh, start the fire on t- uh, start the town on fire. Um, so when, st- when they see that happening, they kind of retreat to, uh, they cross a, a river where they can essentially watch the fire burn the town down. Let us watch them then now as they stand on the riverbank watching the fire. Let us watch them watching and imagine their dreams burning off like fog. Let us imagine that at that moment they abandoned their ideas of progress, of destiny, that they took the train back east and stayed. And let us imagine that a strange exuberance spread among them, tired as they were, and as they watched the buildings catch fire one by one, their exuberance grew into a kind of joy. They were wretched. They were poor. They understood that at any time a fire could raise their dreams to nothing, or if not a fire, then a drought or plague or tornado or quake or flood would wash away whatever paltry progress they had made, and that each such cataclysm was trivial, just a sneer across the earth's ageless face, and that in the face of that fire and all the other fires and all the other forces of the world, they were but nothing. And in that knowledge, let us imagine that they felt relief and joy and fellowship, E.J. McCauley turned to Jay Knowles and smiled slightly and said, Rabbits. Well, I'll be damned. I never thought of those damned rabbits. Then he began to laugh and Knowles joined him and others, and soon they were many laughing together. In the morning they would wake and sift through the burned wreckage of their lives and face their blank uncertain futures, but now they were laughing and touching each other's arms and hands and washing each other's soot-blackened faces and lifting their children high in their arms to watch the fire burn in the inky night, laughing and talking in jovial voices until one voice rose above them all, the beautiful clear soprano of Rosa Anderson. For what seemed like minutes, she sang out one long, unwavering note, which floated up from her lungs and spread over that crowd and beyond them across the empty prairie, the hymn of their longing and their renunciation and their bittersweet goodbye. As if to punctuate the song, at that moment distant explosions thundered across the prairie, and they could see spouts of sparks rise high into the air beyond the town. It was dynamite, stored in casks in the cellar of the mine warehouse, exploding belatedly like fireworks, and with each new blast a cheer went up. 
And let us imagine finally that God was looking down upon Sims that night as those unburdened people stood on the far edge of the river, on the far edge of the century, in the middle of those great plains, in the middle of this vast continent, unterrified, laughing and singing and slaughtering goats for a midnight feast under the star-blown sky. Let us imagine that God watched as Thorsten Larsen tightened the strings of his Hardanger fiddle and they began to dance. And indeed he might have been watching because that fire burned strong and luminous on the dark prairie, burned long into the morning, a spectacle bright enough to catch even the oldest and most tired eyes. That is absolutely one of my favorite passages in your book. And it's really the one exactly that I was thinking of when I was thinking about how there are these unexpected places where joy appears in the work. Um, And I also really appreciate kind of the scope of that widening lens and the way that it plays with time and reminds me also of my presence as a watcher and a looker and a seer and participant in history. And surprisingly, or maybe not, Charlie, the ending of The Sun Collective also does uh, something like this, a a kind of zoom out. And I wonder if you would read from that for us. I'd be happy to. Uh, This is uh, the ending of the novel. Uh, I hope that's not a spoiler. Um, uh, And it it has uh, an effect that's, I think, very close to uh, what Mike's story does. Uh, I've called it called it a horizoning effect. It's a little bit like a movie crane shot where the camera, which has been close to the characters, begins to move up, up and away. And uh, this particular scene uh, takes place on the light rail from uh, the mall going back into Minneapolis. And the character who's on the light rail is Harry Bredigan. On the light rail headed toward Minneapolis, Bredigan let the sun shine on his face. And once again, the light had acquired a blue tint from the advertising sheath that covered the exterior of the train car. When Bredigan glanced at his hands, he noticed that they appeared to be slightly blue as if bruised. The train burst out of the tunnel into the light and stopped at Fort Snelling, where an old woman with a prominent bald spot got on, giving Bredigan an aura of pain around his heart. At the next stop at the VA hospital, a war-torn African-American man with a U.S. Army Iraq war badge on his jacket sleeve came hobbling in, supported by a crutch on his left-hand side. His other sleeve displayed a marksmanship medal with a cross and a circle surrounding it. On his neck was a cross tattoo and another cross hung down on a leather band over his chest. He wore an oversized black boot over his left foot, large enough to surround the wound dressings that were surely enfolded underneath the leather. Using his crutch, his, his face, a mask of pain, as the old, old preachers used to say would make Jesus weep, he headed toward the front of the car where he engaged the first set of passengers in conversation. The train continued toward Minneapolis, passing several grain elevators lit by the mid-morning sun. In the distance, a dog ran down the sidewalk, followed by a red-haired boy on roller skates. Bredigan closed his eyes. Sir? Bredigan opened his eyes. Yes? It was the war-torn veteran. I'm very sorry to bother you, he said. This is embarrassing for me, but I wonder if you have any spare change. Please, whatever you can spare. The pain, which had been located in Bredigan's chest, had moved out to his left arm and his neck, becoming its own universe. And with some difficulty, he reached behind for his wallet, which he extracted from his trousers and opened in front of the veteran. Inside it were four $20 bills and two singles. He took them out 
and handed them over. Here, take them, he said. The veteran studied the bills in Bredigan's hands and his eyes widened. Please, sir, no jokes, he said. I'm serious. Take them. That's, you mean? Take them. I do mean it. Here, $82. It's not a fortune. It's just $82. Bredigan was beginning to wave the money back and forth and then stopped the motion because it hurt. I insist. Very gingerly, the veteran reached out to take the money. Here, Bredigan said, take my wallet too. Take the credit card. Go ahead and use it. I don't need it anymore. He held out the wallet. The veteran stared at him. I came naked into the world and naked I will leave it, Bredigan said. No, I ain't no thief, the veteran said, rubbing the beard stubble on his chin. No, you're not, Bredigan said to him. Okay, don't use the credit card. I get it. That's There's just one thing I ask. What? I want a blessing, Bredigan told him. Give me a blessing. Why? I'm in pain. You've been in the war too, I guess. It shows on you. You know what I'm saying? Well, all right. God bless you, sir. Thank you, Bredigan said. But I can't take your wallet. Sure you can. Where's your stop? The veteran glanced out the window. Next one, Cedar Riverside. Well, I'll take the wallet. If you don't want it, just toss it in the trash. But I'd rather you keep it. You are one crazy motherfucker, the veteran said with an expression of deep pity. What's your thing got you here? This is your stop, Bredigan informed him as the train slowed. Thank you, the veteran said. I ain't going to forget you, ever. Yes, I know, Bredigan said. The man limped out of the car after the doors chimed open, and Bredigan watched him as he stood pensively next to a trash container before pocketing the $82 and tossing the wallet into the container's open mouth. The doors chimed shut, and Bredigan closed his eyes as an involuntary movement took control of his left leg. A chill rose up his body. Abends will ich schlafen gehen. Evenings I will go to bed. The train made a slight turn leftward past a private novelty museum, House of Balls, where carved bowling balls with faces of cherubs and devils were on display and then a paint factory whose exterior had been coated with primary colors. A large football stadium in the shape of a Viking ship loomed up on the left, and the train moved through several switches, lurching slightly as it approached the stop for the stadium, where several people boarded, including a woman pushing a small shopping cart on wheels. She glanced at the man with his eyes closed and took her seat close to the door. Above the train, a flock of sparrows appear to be fighting with each other or are engaged in a mating ritual. And their collective mind takes them in the direction of a small city park in which city workers are even now spreading quilts out on the grass so they can sit down and eat a midday sandwich. Four young men are playing hacky sack on the north end of the park. A light breeze cools the air and overhead, an airplane headed southeast gradually descends for its landing at the airport. Gazing down from the plane, the passenger unfamiliar with the city on the Midwest might spy a commuter train, the light rail, making its way downtown toward Target Field. Is it inward or outward bound? From this distance, it would be hard to say, but the chief flight attendant has just announced that everyone must secure their tray tables and move their seats to the upright position. We will be landing shortly, she says. So the passenger quickly gathers up his odds and ends of flight, mini garbage, and hands it all to the attendant, walking down the aisle and carrying a trash bag. The city looks great from the air, a place of lakes and a river, the Mississippi, 
that flows all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, cutting down the middle of the country like an incision over its heart. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. What a great passage. That's incredibly moving. And then that, that, that one last line is fantastic. The way, And I also wanted to note the way that you bring back the bluish part of his hands, which signifies and reminds of us, to me, made me think of, a, of age and death. And that's the first image that we see of him in the book and that you bring that back around is, you know, craft-wise, the, the right thing to do. You know, I was thinking for, for the ending of this book um, that most of the time when we tell stories, the frame of the story is in what a filmmaker would call either a close-up or a medium shot. The, the individual is everything or it's most things in fiction. We concentrate on individuals. But in Mike's story and the ending of my novel, um, it's as if the narrative camera moves back and we can see that the people we have been studying close up are really part of something much larger. And that um, the narrative camera has been on this person, but it could have been on this other person there are all of these other stories in this community that might have been told. Uh, and uh, I, I, I learned this from a, a, a great Midwestern writer, Wright Morris, who used this technique in a number of his stories, that it is possible to move back uh, almost as if you had a, a, a crane shot that moved back and showed that the individuals you're telling stories about are part of much larger community. Well, it's like those, they have those shots now that they can sort of fabricate. They're like GPS shots where like you can actually go from like in space and all the way down to an individual house, you know, but you're doing the reverse of that in a certain sense. Yeah. Right. It's interesting because Wright Morris, of course, was also a photographer. And um, I know, I mean, you and Mike have had a conversation about the visual as well. I mean, the cover of Mike's book is a, is a George Alt painting um, which I know was a thing that arose in conversation between the two of you early on. And, and that also, um, right, sort of even, I mean, the George Alt painting almost does, um, I feel like I should hold it up too. Um, it, it kind of <laughs> does, the, it kind of does the Wright Morris thing. Um, and, and the photography, I, I wonder how you think about, um, how you think about that. Mike, do you want to take this? I think, yeah, I, when I write, I think, I think visually it's, it's the kind of natural, the natural way that I think about, um, you know, I think in, again, coming back to imagery, um, the cover, Charlie had read many stories, most of which are in, in the book now. And, and one of his kind of final letters to me was to say, Hey, you know, your, your writing kind of reminds me of this guy, George Alt in particular, this one painting. And when I saw it, I was like, Oh, that's, that's it. Right. I mean, it's just it, that feeling of, of really kind of being seen and, <laughs> and understood and having that, having that linkage made, um, this, the technique that, um, that we both, that we both do in our stories, which Charlie got from Wright Morris and I then got learned from Charlie, uh, is, you know, it, Charlie calls it horizoning, which is just another one of these wonderful terms, uh, that, that he's invented. Um, and yeah, speaking to, to kind of what you were saying, Charlie, I think there's, um, there's, I just love the way you put it, you know, the way that we zoom away from the individual and see something larger, see the, potentially the collective. And I think we've all felt, felt this way, felt small or felt perhaps insignificant, you know, maybe when faced with something large, like the, like the night sky or the ocean, or maybe you're in a, in a crowd of people in a protest or something, and you feel, you know, part of something much larger and and sometimes I think that might be a lonely feeling or or you might feel kind of fearful but um, I also think it can be a good feeling this kind of feeling of part of something and feeling maybe awe at something larger uh, than yourself um, and so re learning to represent that in fiction finding that technique was uh, what was really cool as soon as as Charlie introduced it in class, I was like, "Oh, I got it. That's another thing I got to take and try." 
It seems to really knit together isolation and community, which is so much of what both of you are writing about. And then also um, both of you are referencing almost constantly other forms of art. I mean, not just the visual. I mean, there's a there's a character, Mike, in one of your stories who wants the lead role in the musical Annie. Um, Bredigan casually observes that fiction is like quicksand and it's just what is it good for, um, which made me chuckle. So uh, one of our incarcerated writers, Chris, uh, sent in a question asking how you both think about the use of other forms of art as a device to add layers to narrative. It's a wonderful question, uh, and it's particularly uh, difficult and challenging for me to answer it because I'm um, tempted to say that both uh, art, paintings in particular, and music have fed into my work i i hope for for the better uh, like mike I, I i tend to be very visual and if if i can't see uh the scene that i'm writing uh i often can't write it and i'll just sit here and wait looking at this wall that's in front of me that you can't see until I can see what the characters look like and uh, where they are and how they're dressed and uh, what their signature actions are. I have to see all that and then I have to be able to hear them. And um, if I get stuck, one of the things that I'll do is I, I hope this doesn't sound too strange. I'll put some music on uh, because I, I need something like the flow of an emotion to, um, to get me started, to prime the pump some way. Um, and I mean, I think those are the, the, the two arts that really mean the most to me. My grandfather was a painter, so I'm in my office. So if you were around the corner, you could see a painting of, of a place that was a very important place in my first novel. Um, and I thought visually, too. Now, for me, I wanted to ask Mike this since he's earlier on in his career. Charlie's already solved this problem a long time ago. What was hard for me as a writer was that I was too visual early on. I would write just description and nothing would happen in those descriptions, right? So how do you move from writing visually, and maybe you talk to your students about this as well. How do you move from writing visually to putting narrative, getting narrative out of that visual place, right? Because if you just write visually, my early stories were very static, that nothing happened in them, right? How do you move from visual to narrative or, or translate that space? I think, I think I'm right where you were, or maybe right, you know, just have still certainly thinking about exactly that problem. And I think if I am not conscious of it, I could easily just write a story of images and try to convince myself that it's Yeah, it's here's story. my story. It's a description of a river. <laughs> yeah. There are no people. <laughs> one thing one thing that was, you know, wonderful to, you know, think through with, with Charlie, you know, over the course of several years is is how imagery can be layered to make narrative in a story. So as you know, as I mentioned, it can echo and change and recur, and that can create a kind of forward movement. But um, I really, uh, I was, you know, especially in my in my kind of earlier years in graduate school, writing stories where not a whole ton was happening, um, and you know, I kind of had to make the conscious decision. And and one thing that I that I did was just say, well, think of one dramatic event. Um, and it could even be, there could even be some imagery around it, right? It could be an image of something kind of happening um, and make that the heart of the story. So, you know, then you can do your description as long as you have that, you know, in place to kind of build up to at the end. Um, like that scene in Woods, Kansas, maybe, where the, where the female narrator goes and meets this strange woman that she has this sort of bizarre conversation with and it totally changes the direction of the story. Was that an image that you had early on? That's a perfect example. Yeah, I mean, I wanted, I knew I wanted to put the image of the town into the story, but the town itself is not a story. So I was like, okay, well, something has to happen. You have to put somebody there. You have to include some sort of conflict or tension. And, and so, yeah, that's what I came up with. 
So, Charlie, you've taught for a long time and you're still teaching. And Mike, you've taught as a graduate student and in, in via the MPWW since since graduation. I wonder, we wanted to ask you if you could both talk about the relationship between teaching and writing in your in your lives and in work. Well, I I think in in my own case, it it came on uh, gradually. I I was trained really as an academic, and uh, in in the first few years that I I was teaching literature at Wayne State University in Detroit, I uh, would come at the texts I was teaching with a very abstract kind of almost ideological set of um, preconceptions. And the thing about teaching in Detroit is that if you come in front of a class uh, with that sort of uh, presentation, uh, the students will uh, get on your case pretty fast. (laughs) And say, what are you talking about? What, what's this story really about? Why, why are you, t- why are you using words like that? It's not; those words are not um, in 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 this story or in this novel. And I found myself um, becoming much more interested as time went on with the way stories and novels were put together. Together and how somebody went about constructing, thinking about poems and short stories and novels and how those techniques were employed or deployed uh, to create to create a beautiful story. And I found that in fact the kind of criticism that I wanted to read was not necessarily the sort of criticism that was being written. Uh, and so some of my literary essays are, are a product of, of the way I started to think about stories and novels in front of creative writing classes. Um, and I mean, things like like horizoning or request moments or story clocks or acute and chronic tension. My novel begins with uh, an acute tension, which is that Bredigan is looking for his son who's living on the street somewhere, and a chronic tension, which is that he has a heart condition and has to go out to the Utopia Mall to exercise. I mean, all of these things became very practical for me. And uh, in, in my classes, I tried to make the suggestions both as interesting and as practical as, as I could. Yeah, even though, I'll say, even though Charlie has, has now retired from teaching at the University of Minnesota, uh, his, his teaching are still being taught by many, many students he's had over the years who are taking what they've, these concepts that they've learned from him, request moments, one-way gates, Captain Happen. Uh, the vocabulary is so fantastic. <laughs> it's really wonderful. The, the creative writing vocabulary is sort of not, not that great. And it, it, you should make up all those vocabularies. I, I love them, you know. It's fantastic. I love them too, and we're all we're all just just taking them and passing them off as our own wisdom in our own classrooms, you know, all around the, all around the country. Um, and um, you know, I've been I've been so fortunate in the teachers that I've I've had, you know, including Charlie, and and I try to also pass that wisdom that I've I've learned from them along along to my own students, and that's really what I enjoy and and what I really miss. Um, the most about teaching, at least in person, is, you know, sharing something that you love, you know, a piece of writing or an idea um, and having that mean something special to them and have, see them become excited about it and, and having that kind of connection about art. Um, and, and, you know, student, my students always are sharing with me, too. So I've probably learned, you know, <laughs> learned more from my MPWW students than, than they have from me. The interesting thing that I discovered, and I, I don't know at what point in your career, Charlie, you decided this, but I realized like it, like I could make up a name for this thing that I'm doing, and I'm just going to do it, damn it, because there's nobody to stop me from making up a name for it. 
you know, and, and in fact, nobody's made up a name for it. Or if someone uses a different name, you know, the students expect that there's like, it's like medicine, like every part of the body has a specific name, but it, no, like all these things we're doing, you actually can name and a lot of them are unnamed. You know, I find that amazing that so much of what we do in fiction remains unnamed. Right. To take the example of Captain Happen, I had just noticed that in a lot of stories and novels, there's one character who causes uh, the interesting trouble to occur. And at first I thought, oh, it's a sort of spark plug character. It's a catalytic character. And, and then I thought, no, it's Captain Happen. Captain Happen makes things happen. Who in your story is Captain Happen? And sometimes with stories that, that don't work very well, where not much happens, you know, you can say, where's Captain Happen? <laughs> so we have a question from Logan. Uh, it's a simple question. What is your favorite novel? And can you name one that is not one that someone here has written? An important caveat. Love Marriage, my favorite novel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for, for my purposes, for this book, for The Sun Collective, my favorite novel uh, was Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita. Funny, sad, political, smart, wildly entertaining, uh, joyous and despairing. And uh, I named The Dog and the Cat in The Sun Collective after the cat in The Master and Margarita and the devil, Woland and Behemoth. That, that's my favorite novel as of this week. That's an interesting idea that I think I've had favorite novels for a book that I was writing, maybe each time, you know, that I would go back to. I mentioned that First Light, your novel, it goes backward because I was writing my last book went backward in time. And so there were very few other novels that did that. And it was really helpful for me to read that book. Oh, and I did over and over again. Mike, there's a question for you that says, which of the stories in your collection was the most challenging for you to write? They were all challenging, but um, one, well, I can, I can, there's one story called The Upper Peninsula. Um, I think it's the shortest story in the book. Um, again, this, there's a connection here, here to Charlie. Um, in, in one of our classes, he was talking about stories, stories about happiness and I was starting to feel around that time like, oh, okay, I'm writing these stories. They're kind of grim. And maybe I ought to try this, right? Try to write a story about happiness and totally failed. I mean, the story ultimately I don't think is, is very happy. Uh, <laughs> but it was an interesting exercise and it was difficult, right, to think about writing um, um Taking characters who maybe have have faced hardship and um, and come through it and are are finding a way, uh, not in every single moment maybe, but um, broadly speaking, to be happy. I found that really challenging. I feel like some of the happier moments, just to follow up on that, in both of your books are these moments that are magical, kind of where there's something a little bit at the fringe of reality happening. Could you talk a little bit about that? I. Um thought a lot about this because it, it seems to me that if you're reading a novel that is plot driven um, you sometimes lose the, the magic of any particular moment and here and there in, in my novel there are passages that I thought, well, maybe my editor is going to force me to take this out. Um, but um, he, he, didn't, he didn't ask me to remove all of them. Well, for, for example, there's, there's one moment um, in a scene of a dinner party in, in my book when uh, Bredigan is thinking back to uh when he was in his 20s and had some friends who had started a sort of commune uh, in, in a Wisconsin farm 
and he just daydreams about it. And what he's actually thinking about is happiness. Uh, and he's, I, I think he's a little bit like Oscar Levant, who once said that happiness is not something you experience. Happiness is something you remember. Uh, and the, the, there are there are half a dozen moments like that in my book. They sort of stop the show. You can't stop it for very long. But but I think I think happiness is as much a part of our lives as most of our other emotions. And and it's it's a serious task for a writer to to get those moments into fiction. Yeah, I, I think it's it is so hard to write those moments and. If you're happy, I think oftentimes we think about nothing's happening, right? If it's if you're content, there's nothing. Right? Stories we learn are about conflict and and tension, and and so how do you get that happiness into it? And one way I think are these are these moments when the story can kind of um, transcend its own plane of of existence and and move into into something that's not that's not realism is is something kind of more more exaggerated or more magical than that and and that kind of that movement maybe creates its own kind of tension um that that the story can use to 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 keep the reader moving forward i think in both cases those were some of the most moving moments in the books for me i'm going to go here to a question um from charlie underwood in the chat you both talk about description morphing into a more dynamic narrative, but you both talk about social movements from the 30s or in the context of incarceration. Could you talk about any tension you feel between the observation of writing and activism of social movements? It's, it's a great question. I, I think that um, writing that has um, a point uh, that is, that, that, seeks to bring about social change. There's an honorable history of such books. Uh, Abraham Lincoln famously said to Harriet Beecher Stowe about Uncle Tom's Cabin that uh, she was the woman that started that war, the Civil War. Of course, that wasn't the truth, but, uh, you know, that book changed a lot of minds. Uh, to go to an opposite pole, um, you have to say that Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged has had a profound effect for me, unfortunately. No! <laughs> no! Uh, on, a, on a lot of, of people. Um, I, don't, I don't think my own fiction has caused anybody's behavior to change that much but it may have changed the way people think about the world, the way they feel the world, or the way that they can say when they're reading a, a, a story or a book of mine or of anybody else, oh, somebody else has felt what I have felt. For me, that's maybe the most important thing. I was, um, I was listening to an interview with Cornell West recently, um, kind of in the wake of the election, and it was a little bit of a, a down note interview um, in which he was being asked, you know, what are we to do in the face of this, you know, political reality that, that we live in? Um, and I was really surprised. He said, he said, we all have to organize, and there's lots of ways to organize, and one way to organize is to make art. And uh, I, I was not expecting him to say that, but I've been meditating on that for, um, you know, ever, ever since then. Um, and and I think you I think you put it just right, Charlie. If it's if it's good, then you know the impact that writing or art can have might not start a social movement, but but helps people see the world in a way that you know makes makes change change seem possible or, or more tangible. So we have way more questions than we're going to be able to answer here. So we're going to tell everyone honestly, I think we're going to be able to take about two more. Mike, here's a question for you. I'm going to combine two questions together. When I was, one says, when I was reading your stories, I was so impressed by how each person came alive with such detail and depth. Where do you get the inspiration for your characters? Next question, which I assume is going to relate. 
who are some of your favorite short story writers? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, hmm, where do I get it? I I guess you know probably like most most writers, I you know you just know people in the world and and attributes of them make their way into your stories and and maybe if they're not in the world they you are reading about them or you know they're finding encountering them in other types of art um favorite short story writers is such a long list have to say Alice Munro uh have to say Edward P Jones ZZ Packer um uh Dennis Johnson one last question. Um, and there's so many good ones here. It's so wonderful to see all of you tonight, to see this wonderful, um, appreciative chat going on. I feel like I'm, I'm in the crowd that would have assembled in person under different circumstances. And I so appreciate it. Um, hi, Mike and Charlie. Thank you so much for this conversation. Many of both of your plots center on the ways in which people relate to one another. Can you both talk about how you think about writing human connections and relationships. And this is from Josh. Charlie, I want to, I want to hear you on this, Charlie, especially thinking about the relationship between uh, Harry and Alma in your book. Yeah. What I found myself doing in this novel was uh, to set up two different kinds of relationships. Uh, The, uh, Relationship between Harry and Alma is a long-term marriage. These two people have known each other for virtually their entire adult lives. And I wanted to write what that was about. They're absolutely necessary to each other. Harry thinks about Alma that he needs her the way he needs water. You don't have to love water, but you can't live without it. And, um, and, and the two of them sometimes think that they're in the condition of post-love. But it, it seemed very, it seemed crucial to me to, to write um, about two people who behave in ways that are almost always predictable to the other person. And at the same time in the novel, there's a young couple, Christina and Ludlow, who uh, have just met each other and are kind of feeling each other out. I tend to feel that novels require a kind of contrast uh, in the way that the characters relate to each other. And and that was the contrast. I hope it wasn't too schematic that I set up in this novel. I, I'm, I'm particularly interested, and I don't mean to go on for so long, um, in uh, what people do when they think they're unobserved. Uh, and there's something that I kind of got from Sherwood Anderson. And, and so uh, Harry and Alma are constantly sort of spying on each other and seeing each other when they think that they're not being watched. Isn't it awesome that you get to answer that question after Charlie Baxter? Yeah, <laughs> right, of course. Now, <laughs> where do you go now? <laughs> well, you know, the title of my book is Some People Let You Down, and so there's a lot of that happening in the book. Uh, I've kind of touched on this before, but um, earlier tonight, but um, I there was a... a I don't know, partially conscious, but also, you know, just an organic um, um, movement that I went through where I I started to think, you know, some people do let you down, but I mean, that's not a totally accurate (laughs) depiction of of life, just like how happiness is, is as much a part of life as anything. There are people who don't let you down. And so I started to think about relationships in that way too, and and trying to trying to depict them, you know, ways that people save each other or help each other, come to each other's aid, and and understand each other, and um, it can be harder, I think, to write a story that has you know that culminates in that way rather than in a in a betrayal or in a disappointment. Um, harder for me, at least, but. Um, but that was kind of a challenge I, I set myself to because I thought it was important to um, 
uh, include stories like that as well. These books are so wonderful. I just want to remind our listeners again uh, and our attendees to purchase the book from Moon Palace Books. Charlie and Mike, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a pleasure and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you both, Sugi and Whitney. Thank you so much for, for having us on. And thank you, Andrea and Moon Palace, for hosting us. That goes for me too. Thank you all. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. Special thanks to Moon Palace Books. You can buy Charles Baxter and Mike Alberti's books from Moon Palace or from an independent bookstore near you. Our show's producer is Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. Thanks to this semester's show intern producers, Mary Hen and Emily Stanley. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNFTalk, on Facebook at FNFPod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. Happy holidays, listeners. Up next time, our last episode of 2020.